0: Today,
1: on Edge Effects. In that piece, you can hear musicians singing. You can hear them talk about the stock exchange today. You can hear boat traffic. The history is all there. The economics of today are in it, and the economics of the past are in
0: it. Andrew Thomas, a doctoral student in the English department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaks with Monica Haller, a practicing artist, writer, and educator. Haller's most recent work brings her to the eroding wetlands of the Louisiana coast, land that has been in her family for six generations. They discuss how, through recording the sounds and vibrations of the Mississippi River, Haller's work explores philosophies of ownership, plantation capitalism, and the Anthropocene, the social construction of race, and environmental racism.
2: Hi, Monica. Thanks for uh, being in conversation with me today. I've really been looking forward to this Partially because I'm I'm a native Texan, grew up on the Texas Gulf Coast, uh, spent a number of years in Mississippi, and then I've kind of moved up to Wisconsin in the last several years. So I've kind of followed the Mississippi River north very gradually the last several years. Yeah, let's go ahead and jump right into your work. Your work engages with a variety of communities and mediums, photography, design, sound, installation, and writing. And because much of your work is visual, can you describe your work for us and tell us a little bit about the communities that you work with?
1: So, uh, first, I think I should say that because I work with, I work across, you know, like so many people, interdisciplinary, across fields. The work I sometimes need to give a little contextualize my practice a little bit. So, my practice sometimes I make images and videos and installations that are uh, in a traditional sense, I, I make the proper images myself, and then they're meant for the gallery or public installation of kind, some sort. They can be large since it's visual. They can be large, still it photographs, or video on a screen or a monitor, or an installation outdoors by the Mississippi River, for example. Uh, sometimes these works have many collaborators and they're, they're far from individual artist projects. Right? So they involve other artists, architects, sound engineers. And then sometimes I don't make my own, let's say, photos, for example, or videos at all, but instead work with, with material and people who already have something that exists. Right? So, so these projects, um, and I do these often in, in long-term collaborations with individuals or sm- small groups of people, And when I'm in these collaborations, we, you know, my role will change depending on the nature of the collaboration and the work we want to achieve within it, because the collaborators have their own agendas too, right? So in that case, sometimes my job would be more like to set up a framework, let's say, and then I might even step in, and I certainly have my agenda within that framework, and then I step inside that framework and then my role can shift and I become like an editor, facilitator, and try to learn the skills needed. (laughs)
2: When you were kind of talking about having your own vision and also collaborating with others, I, I noticed that your work has been described as exploring violent and nonviolent activities in human and environmental systems. So do you seek out do you seek out people to collaborate with who are doing this kind of work? Do you see do you see your work changing?
1: Where I, I start most often is with questions or things I'm experiencing in my own life. And how I am my experience or I am situated in these larger systems, right? And that is the beginning point. Usually it starts for me with a question or a series of questions. And then the research or the exploration and the reach out to others is in, is in response to those questions I'm asking myself and exploring myself.
2: Have you found some like recurring or nagging questions that just haven't seemed to, to go away over the years? Mm-hmm.
1: One big one is around the construction of race as it relates to my own life, um, my own experience, and the kind of construct, the, the way the construction of race is played out within my own family, um, as is part of a US kind of colonial history. So that has been an egging question since I was a teenager, a kid, right? It's, yeah. it's, and I've spent a lot of time around it, you know, academically first and foremost, personally, right? Um, so yeah, so I think they, that usually starts there. And then I see how that operates, like I said, in larger systems. And then do work around it. You know, with with the Riley and his story in the Veterans Book Project, that, there's a lot, I could talk about that on a lot of levels in terms of what I, the questions I was asking in my own life. We were we, meaning the U.S., where I live and, and I'm a citizen, was involved in this, the this war in Iraq, and it, we were two years in, and it felt pretty silent and ongoing. And I myself, you know, I have thought a lot and studied and around social movements and different sort of the social circumstances under which so certain actions and activism and protests can disrupt particular systems, right? And within that context, I was thinking about what, I was missing, and for for sure, I was missing what felt like intimate conversation around the wars, very direct conversation. I was thinking a lot about um, protest at that particular moment in time. This is two thousand five, two thousand um, five, two thousand three, two thousand four. I was thinking about the kind of polarization in the country at that time, and so in relationship to that, I was thinking about at that time it felt like. Ways of engaging with protest, I was needing to look at different models of it. At that moment, within a particular polarized place, it felt like one of the more radical things I could do would be reach out to people I might heavily disagree with and start some conversations. Another thing felt really important was to talk very intimately about what was happening for people in combat. It feels like a very different political moment now. Right. It is extremely different political moment now. So to kind of recall that is in, in the moment I'm in now. What felt radical then doesn't, right? My footing is very different. And I think for myself and many people as artists, as poli- the politics changes, as the social circumstances changes, your footing changes, your work and roles that you have as an artist change. And that definitely is happening right now for me. But at that moment, that was an, an important Thing for me to for me to do, and that was an impulse behind that project. Yeah. So again, in some level, it felt like it was started with this this sort of personal question, my own footing within the country at that time, and what I felt like I needed to be asking.
2: So I kind of want to bracket off the your your discussion about the veterans' book project because that's something that's very interesting to the work that that I do, and I like your point about talking about this uh, this present moment is very different than what you were feeling back close to fifteen years ago now. So let's maybe kind of think about this current moment for a minute, and the current project that you're working on, which is the uh, Mississippi and Anthropocene River Project, mm-hmm. and this is an uh, affiliation with a couple of different institutes uh, in in Berlin. So can can you talk a little bit to us just about what was kind of the impetus behind this project, and how how you see it? Yeah, how how you see it relating to this kind of present political moment, this environmental moment.
1: So the the work that I had been doing on the mississippi river had been going on in, in an iterative way since let's say 2012 2013 and then in the last year this the german institutes that you mentioned the hakave and the max planck institute they came to several groups and people in the us because of their interest in doing um, exploring the river as an Anthropocene, the Mississippi River is an Anthropocene site in the Twin Cities. So, what happened is there are many, many people who had already been doing a lot of work and are doing a lot of work in the big <laughs> watershed and re- region of the Mississippi, many regions, and they reached out to people to see if they're interested in being involved. And then, of course, there are many people who are doing new projects because of this prompt about the the Mississippi as an Anthropocene site, right? So so the work on the Mississippi I had already been doing preceding that. And what was the second part of your question?
2: Well yeah, it, it, it just what what it, what do you see? I, I feel like since about twenty twelve is right about the time I think Anthropocene, the term okay. like really kind of started to take traction. Yeah. Um Former UW professor Rob Nixon, he actually posted an article on Edge Effect. So I feel like Anthropocene now is, I think it has traction within a much larger community than maybe it did, you know, about seven or eight years ago. So I guess I'm just curious, like, what you know, th- this is kind of an interdisciplinary project. You as a visual artist, how are, how are you? How is the project? How- when you say, like, it's an Anthropocene river, like... I feel like yeah.
1: that's their language okay. a bit okay. more. I mean, certainly I have, at different points, been very much engaged with the idea of the Anthropocene. But I think that where I am I, doing the work first and then engage in the Anthropocene questions, I don't want to focus on them because yeah, it's yeah. not... I don't do the work for a particular theory or for in service of a particular topic, right? I think you asked a while back kind of what m- some of my motivation was yeah. to work along the river. And I'll say that um, part of my family was from coastal Louisiana. And, New- and so my family still lives in New Orleans. And the part of the family that's, and there's land that's been in my family for six generations in coastal Louisiana. So it's on the east bank of the Mississippi River, 30 miles downriver from New Orleans. And then it, it, it is on the east bank and then extends back a couple hundred acres and dissolves into wetlands. So my grandparents came up during the Great Migration, left and went up to Minneapolis after their general store had been burnt down multiple times, most likely because of racial persecution, although like many families, there are multiple stories about why, right? My great-grandmother was Louisiana Creole, as, as they called her, which means she was a black woman, and my great-grandfather was from Beirut, um, Lebanon. So they had an interracial marriage and um, or interracial union. And came up to Minneapolis. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because they sent my grandfather down every summer to farm on the land, which was a rice plantation and a vegetable farm. And then he brought his children down in the summers. So my mom grew up going down there. And then later, I also went down there. So there's multiple generations of moving up and down the river, right? And, And so a lot of my experience of the river is sort of this particular kind of spatial understanding of it. Like people sending me text messages in the spring, like, what are you sending us down? Like, are we going to flood the levees? Things like that. Which for some people actually would be a really good thing. Downriver from New Orleans. For me, the beginning of the the Mississippi River work um, came out of an impulse in the Twin Cities as invited to do an installation, a piece as part of a festival in the Twin Cities. And um, for me, I, I wanted... To very simply invite people to kind of be next to the water, um, but to think about it in hopefully in a more expanded way. And I didn't do it alone. There were other artists who were very much part of the project an architect named Molly Reichert, sound artists Jonathan Zorn and Adrian Knuff. I was really interested in using sound, and it, it is it's like a vast, amazing medium. <laughs> Actually, this whole discipline in and of itself, and I felt like I was dipping in my toe, right. But I was interested for a number of reasons. One, because thinking about the medium—I mean, sound first—is much, much more than a medium, right? But when I get to think about the medium of sound, um, the the way that sound travels through the medium of water, and versus the way sound travels through the medium of air. So when I started thinking about water as a medium, water is much more than a medium, of course. But even as a medium, it's really interesting and exciting. And the medium of air, like as painting is a medium or photo is a medium, like wa- water is a medium and air is a medium. That's That was inter- exciting to me. But the reason I was thinking about sound, how sound travels through the medium of water is because you can sometimes hear far away as if it's close to you really fast, right? Really quickly. And so that, so what it, this offered. You're talking
2: about like when, when you're on the kind of the, the, the open water. When you of, can, of, of when
1: you listen to sound through the medium of water. So you're, so you're like putting a microphone in the water okay. instead of in the air. You can hear something far away right next to you rather quickly. Right. So that opened up for me the way to think about like expand and collapse space and time. And that was really exciting to think about that how space in a certain way can be collapsed because of that, that the travel, the way that sound travels through water. And in a certain way, it also can be expanded, right? Like if you can imagine seeing the river like shortened <laughs> a certain way or see it elongated or think about time shortened and elongated. So, right, I can think about, I can hear like the sound of this newborn sound of the headwaters. It's like, it's gurgle, but I can also think about it in geologic terms, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, one of the things that your work seems to be hitting on is, in terms of the Anthropocene, is, is kind of like thinking of just the scale of it, like like the right. the, the geological scale, even just trying to to imagine it. It se- seems to be a very difficult process, and I know a lot of people have advocated for trying to get a larger public to understand and think about the Anthropocene is through kind of personal narratives through familial narratives like mm-hmm. I, I know people here in Wisconsin they'll, they'll talk about here in Madison we're surrounded by four lakes and mm-hmm. so the lakes have ice a certain number of days and so I I know some people have talked about how over like the last 40 or 50 years the number of days that the lakes have ice has gotten like shorter and shorter and so thinking about the ways in which families, have recreated on the lakes in, in all four seasons, but you know it's 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 very palatable in the winter when we have less ice for you know for 20 less days than than maybe we did 10 or 20 years ago. Do you feel like because of your family connection in Louisiana is that kind of propelling your 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 interest in in the work in in, in the Twin Cities, or was that just kind of like a, a, a starting place? Like like do, do do you see yourself kind of Contracting the distance between Minneapolis and, and and Louisiana, which are kind of the the bookends of the of the of the Mississippi River, are, are you thinking of it in, in those terms? Or? I
1: think about it in those terms, yes. But also to go back to what you were saying about seasons and time and change of the climate. I think a curator said to me once that it's so difficult to think about or to understand or see these massive changes because we don't... It's very hard for humans to have these long views, right? So I think in terms of what generations of family or generations of history offers is a kind of way to, in many environmentally, um, ecologically, racially, to both to expand out and like project yourself or imagine back many generations and to expand forward so that's both in my mind a kind of like collapsing right because I'm trying to do it this is what I'm trying to work on in a new book that I'm that I'm in the middle of is both in a certain way collapsing that not collapsing it but but bringing many well in this case it's many women's voices in my family both living and dead into the same same space right so that's both bringing it together but also it's trying to aerate it in a way right it's trying to pull it apart and understand things that have often been flattened it can flattened in terms of environment, or but also in terms of identity, right? <laughs> that's something that's really not often very fixed for many, many people, but they're asked to be really fixed. So that's how I think about family is this chance to bring something into the same space that maybe gets forgotten or has, has all sorts of contradictory stories and like aerate those out and let the contradictions live together and and expand and like, like I said, think, project oneself into the future and try to imagine back and call forward voices that maybe haven't had their chance yet. That is fiction. That is reality. That is like conflicting narratives. That's multiple. That's narratives plural, right? But that's really exciting to me. Like that's why I kind of am going into into genealogical research, like the territory of genealogical research.
2: Listening to you now, it seems like a conduit for... For a lot of other things that I wouldn't initially think of as Anthropocene related. And so I'm, I'm just kind of curious in, in your work in this kind of interdisciplinary group, you know, it's kind of framed as like Mississippi and Anthropocene River. Is, is there much debate among your cohort of fellow researchers and collaborators about this term? Is it, is it seen as a, as a useful term, as a contentious term?
1: So we've been recording on the river, right, sounds, and talked about sound moving through water, right, and one of the reasons for that in terms of distance and space, right? So in 2015, uh, another artist and collaborator uh, and designer, Sebastian Mulauer, and I spent two months traveling the Mississippi River to. To more thoroughly gather underwater sounds, um, and Sebastian designed a, along with other people in Berlin, a robot, um, an environmental ro- water robot that's called ORB, and he conceptualized that as a kind of platform for artists and scientists to use for their research and work. So we're like, okay, let's let's put a hydrophone on this and other data collection devices, and so that's so that's what we did. Gathering The gathering the sounds also became a way to engage with people along the river's banks who oftentimes knew that region or the, the water much better than we did as people who were not there regularly passing through, right? So that allowed us to grow. A, I wouldn't call it an archive that has its own implications. and call it that yet, but grow a large and mass sounds on the river, right? Um, and so they, there's like a debate if the river really has a lot Orally to offer, right? But sound. So there, there's a whole r- range of sounds we can share. Some of them from from very very mundane things to the sound of alligator gar to radio interference in New Orleans, which I think is to me really exciting. So in some ways, sound is also a medium to other enter other historic, political, social material, and the sound itself is, is often a signifier to or a window to something else right and you can layer that sort of thing indefinitely <laughs> so sound is the medium for this it's also a kind of in itself like someone said this morning at the breakfast that it's itself is a kind of collaging montaging substance right and so in the kind of discourse around the anthropocene this is this is a really crucial thing right because you can hear like radio interference and the radio interference is super interesting i think just in terms of what the water holds, right? Like, and the technological limitations of the equipment we're using, but really like the water holds all of this. It holds like, so in one piece, you can hear them talk about the Dow Jones and you can hear like a, a, like a song. And then you can also hear this, this noise from a barge that's out on the main river. And that's, that's actually, this is a montage that's all, a collage that's happening in the because of the medium itself right it says there's this layering right in the water so like i said i think um in terms of anthropocene discourse that becomes kind of interesting of itself and then sometimes like what does the sound of an uncapped oil well sound like which is everywhere in the louisiana gulf um coast and like in fact it sounds like very little right but the silence is a signifier too. So the piece we're doing right now is is make, making a composition with with two composers, um, Michi Wayanko and Jud Greenstein, and we're taking these sounds that exist and making new recordings to supplement them to create a composition, a kind of a layering composition. But again, in that composition, you won't—that's one aspect of it. But there's also an installation and a kind of score map to help people try to or invite them to kind of like imagine the larger the larger implications or ex- expand beyond the sound piece because the sound piece will be an experience that people can settle into.
2: Are the composers going to be just using the sounds that, that y'all have gathered? Or are they, are they going to be interweaving like they'll actual like instruments as, as well? Yeah, we're,
1: we're experimenting with it, right? Okay. <laughs> as yeah. we speak, but potentially yeah. a little, um, a little instrumentation will make new sounds as, as needed. Yeah. So they'll be interweaving some things. Yeah. But, you know, you won't necessarily know just in listening to the piece what those sounds reference so that that sort of score prose piece will just give little clues, hopefully to invite people to expand out and imagine what's what's there. And I hope the piece also can be a kind of platform for other people who are living in a particular reality or living with a sound or their academic researches around that to take that and really use it as a launching point and unpack a specific sound, right? So I think the composition will be a platform for, for like, again, kind of opening it up, aerate it, and unpacking it in yeah. all sorts of terms.
2: Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I know... Um the composer max richter he, t- he took vivaldi's four seasons and kind of you know kind of recompose that and i think you know he's known for like incorporating like a lot of like found sound or or you know j- just just like ambient sound and, and things like that so it seems in some ways kind of in in that vein but kind of using the mississippi as a I mean as a fellow southerner I feel like the Mississippi is often invoked like as a muse you know and and so and so kind of uh, it seems like your project is kind of uh, engaging with that in in some ways mm-hmm. as 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 well
1: as in, yeah I mean I hope it's a very active like an active body actually too yeah
2: it seems like by nature your work is is already interdisciplinary that was kind of the way you 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 you, you introduced yourself in in this in this kind of collective project of the Mississippi uh, Anthropocene River, have you noticed any challenges to interdisciplinary work? Because I I know often in the environmental humanities, it's kind of talked about, you know, we need to collaborate across disciplines. We need to kind of bring the humanities, the arts and the sciences together. And sometimes it seems like based on people's different experiences or discipline specific vocabularies and stuff like that, there often seems to be moments where people could be potentially talking past each other, whether that's how certain ideas are defined or expressed. Have you come across that at all in, in your work, or, or, or has it been pretty pretty smooth sailing?
1: I think one of the ways that interdisciplinarity works for me is that it, you, it may start with an idea or a topic. or So, for example, I've spent some time, at least a year, but longer at this much longer at this point, thinking about soil and the life of soil and the human ideologies that that live in soil and bringing that up, right? So naturally, then I was working with soil scientists for sure. In coastal Louisiana, there are liminologists and other people too. So for me, oftentimes the collaborations start with the content. And I think it's been a very different way for me to wrap my head around this when it starts with a different prompt, like institutions wanting to do work around the Anthropocene River. And so then so some groups are defined based on that. And so then it, it's more challenging for me then to find really meaningful collaborations when there is a different kind of topic imposed first.
2: There's just been experiences that I've been in where it's like, oh look, we'll throw some historians and geographers yeah. and lit studies people and some like biologist and chemist in a room and it's just kinda like Yeah. Trying to find like a common a common language right. can often prove difficult. Yeah. Or
1: so I found that when it starts with the idea the content and the idea, the common language, there's, there's already a pretty natural inroad, right? Like like I said, when we're working with soil scientists, there are some pretty, it's incredible. It's like hearing them talk about the research just gets my imagination going like, like it's wonderful. It is really different when some people, like people are first invited to be in the same room and then find some common language. And that, yes, that's much more challenging. Like what about the Anthropocene for you is like, what do you want to talk about in relationship to that in this project?
2: So initially, so there, there, there's a whole seminar going on here this semester. It's called the, I'm not in it, but I've I've attended a few talks and it's called, it's about the plantation scene. And so it's talking about all these different types of ways of kind of understanding. So the, the Anthropocene is usually kind of considered, that was the starting point, but the anthropocene isn't just something that all humans produce like it's been produced unevenly by by the global north over you know so so some people is like well maybe we should call it the capitalocene others have said well actually we can kind of trace this back to the plantation is seen in plantation capitalism. And then there's, you know, so there there seems to be this kind of proliferation of terms, mm-hmm. which sometimes I feel like is, is it just becomes kind of a rarefied academic debate. Mm-hmm. And and it seems like we kind of seem to have the same end goal or, or we seem to kind of recognize that there are drastic environmental issues that are happening. Mm-hmm. And regardless of how we label it, we still have to, we have to think in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And so-
1: But I, I do yeah. think there's something really important about about making some of those distinctions. because And this is a conversation we all had very early on in thinking about the Mississippi River Anthropocene Campus, and it is by no means a conversation that's over. It's actually at probably the forefront. I think those distinctions are really important because there are a lot of assumptions initially, right, based in that this this idea, right, one being what you've already talked about, that that this is not an equitable kind of, like, cause, <laughs> how the sort of catastrophic changes have happened isn't done by all humans like that for sure. And also the idea that I think embedded in the Anthropocene is a kind of apocalyptic narrative in a certain way that because of, I mean, very, very real dramatic changes to the climate there, you know, this is a, this is a reality, but I think that, that embedded in that, and this is like what I'm saying is not, not new, but embedded in that is assumption that the, the catastrophic events haven't already happened for a long time for many people across the globe, and that they're not still happening every day, right? So I think that's something that, that is on the table really right away with a lot of the conversations around the Anthropocene River. Like if they can have terms or not, but I think it's, regardless, it's important for that to be, like, on the table, Immediately, you
2: know, as a southerner growing up and as I became more aware of like southern history, like it was kind of hard for me not to see the Mississippi River as associated with plantation capitalism and, and things like that. And so it just seems like that that history is always already going exactly. to be part of the, of the Mississippi River. And
1: it's think, I mean, thinking about it's really if you think about the colonial Louisiana, which is I think fascinating in its own term because of how it was colonized in a different way than a lot of Anglo U.S. America, it's like fundamentally wrapped up in what you're in what you're saying, right? So if the Louisiana Purchase opened up the Mississippi River Delta. Um, you know, a bunch of things happened at the same time, right? There was the cotton gin. There was the, the reality that that sugar cane could be far could be grown and farmed this far north, and then there was the opening up of the Mississippi River Valley and this selling of people to this region, um, of its enslaved people to the Mississippi River, like all of that is wrapped up in each other. New Orleans becoming the new slave trading, trading the, the of enslaved of people South, capital the most, of the South. Yeah, that wasn't or the
2: economic capital. Right. And that yeah. was
1: new, newly happened when the Mississippi River was opened up. All of those things connect. So you're right. I completely agree with you that the Mississippi River is all inherently part of these. Is, is, in, is like the movement of human bodies, of enslaved yeah. bodies up the river. These are, Mississippi River is, is completely, is ne- never, that's an, all part of this, is never separate. I mean, you said it really, really well. Yeah. Other artists I work with closely are working with that very directly. In fact, in, in Texas right now, too. Really? So, yeah, I think that's like when I'm talking about the score and the kind of, I'm, I'm imagining, so I'm imagining the sound piece, but when I t- mentioned that there's going to need to be a kind of, I'm imagining it as like a prose and a score, and right now I'm imagining that I include some lines from the Mississippi watershed, but when I'm saying I need, I need to like give people an invitation to imagine the history beyond, that is absolutely something that, that's crucial, right, to know that that always exists, and when I think about water as a medium, it is a medium for that history, too, like connecting to that, bringing it forward, not that it ever disappeared. (laughs) This also was used as a medium, to, tr- to like to move human, to right. transport human bodies. In, in
2: I mean, your your project. I mean, just kind of thinking of these 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 recordings along and around the Mississippi River. I mean, it also reminds me of like the really famous recordings of like Alan Lomax, where he's mm-hmm. going to among other places like Parchman Farm in in northern Mississippi, and he's kind of recording. You know, it's kind of some of the yeah. earliest like. What we'd probably now call it blues recordings, or, or, or something like that, and so it's it's kind of this kind of documenting of these voices that have largely been put there because of transportation along 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 the Mississippi River. So mm-hmm. it, it seems, in some ways, your project might even be kind of like in in that in that tradition in very different ways, but in also mm-hmm. in kind of similar ways.
1: Yeah, right. And it's so I think a lot of it's there. Like I was mentioning earlier, this one recording in the Industrial Canal in um, New Orleans. So the radio interference, like just the collage that's happened, the montaging that's happening in the river, it's radio interference. And in that piece, you can hear musicians singing. You can hear, I couldn't get my, you can hear them talk about the stock exchange today. You can hear boat traffic. The history is all there. The economics of today are in it and the economics of the past are, are in it and it's there.
2: The famous Caribbean scholar, Edward Glissant, you know, he mm-hmm. says that the sea is history and when he's kind of thinking of the, the transatlantic movement, but in, in so many ways the Mississippi right. is, is, is very much part of that history.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, I think like you were talking about, you know, growing up in the South.
2: I grew up in Houston and I would frequently visit Galveston and it was this super muddy beach because, you know, the Mississippi river was kind of dumping, it was dumping out and in, into the Gulf, not, not too many, you know, a couple hundred miles East. And so my idea of going to the beach was like playing in brown water, you know? And so like, I always kind of had the Mississippi there. And then once I actually moved to the state of Mississippi and literally drove along the Mississippi river. It, you know and, and Mississippi is divided from, from Louisiana by, by the river right. and, and from Arkansas by the river. It, it just became like um, that much more kind of solidified in my mind as this this kind of lasting presence in, in my own kind of coming of age mm-hmm. in the South.
1: I think it's so interesting like to hear that. And to hear what you said earlier about the Mississippi and plantation yeah. capitalism. But both in both cases, when you were talking about that, I, as I heard you're talking about in relationship to how your your own experience moving up the river. And for me, too, that the way I see it is so informed by that. So it's also like very interesting to think about how people's bodies are in relationship to it and what that actually brings up when they envision it or understand it.
2: Maybe maybe now would be a good time to kind of backtrack a little bit because earlier you you talked about the veterans book project and you know you were kind of talking about it your your interest in initially talking about the construction of race and family that got you thinking about kind of social movements in kind of 2003, 2004, 2005, and being in conversation with people that you might might heavily disagree with. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the Veterans Book Project, mm-hmm. I often feel like when, when people think of photographers in war, they probably think of somebody... Like embedded with combat units, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of out there in the field, and yet your work, the Veterans Book Project, is is very different. So you're more of kind of like a, a collaborator or kind of like a collector and organizer. Mm-hmm. So could you just talk a little bit about the v- Veterans Book Project?
1: You also asked about traditionally, or in a lot of cases in photojournalism or photo, that they're embedded. So I was actually to back up. I think like one of. A home of mine, let's say, is in photography. And I think when I feel most engaged with it, the history of the history of technically the history of the camera is super wrapped up in you know, European expansion and the, the, actually the construction of race and how people were being like represented and and, and in really violent ways, of course. So I, I get really engaged in photography when I feel like I have something to push up against. Like right now, I'm, I've been photographing these live oak trees for 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 many years. Like like 15 18 years something like that and they resist so intensely they resist because they're so massive and they can sprawl for blocks they really resist being photographed and that's such an exciting place for me right they resist in being inframed in this particular way and the camera never gets the whole tree and so that conceptually and practically like opens up this whole other world and i love it so i guess like with the veterans book project i was engaging critically with the tradition of documentary photography and the tradition of photojournalism in in various ways. Right. So who gets to represent whom, um, who gets to speak? Um, like it actually seemed like a really important time to put down my camera, to not embed myself in something, to not create new, there are already plenty of dramas in my life and others, like not to create that, but to think, to like, talk to and work with people and invite people who already had massive amounts of materials and images that they'd made themselves and sometimes engaged with and sometimes really had put down for very particular purposes, right? Like that seemed really exciting. So very much it's engaged with this tradition of document photography, critically engaged with it. And that was very exciting to me. That's like those moments of, yes, then I want to engage with photography.
2: I was reading something about one of the veterans you worked with, Riley uh, Char- uh, Charbonneau. Yeah. One of the things that he had written was about that what he was seeing, it was it was too complex. It was too horrific. It was beyond understanding and yet, he was using these photographs to to know that these things happened. Was was, was what was what he said? And mm-hmm. so it was almost just kind of washing over him. But he was just going to use the photograph as as, as a medium of, of documentary. In an interview, you talked about your grandfather mm-hmm. uh, in World War II, mm-hmm. um, and he was taking photographs of concentration camp victims being buried. And you know, on the back of the photo. There's some description of just the place and time. And then I think parenthetically, your grandfather wrote, I saw this. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be this impulse, at least in these Mm -hmm. two examples, of using the photograph as just like, this happened. This is what I saw.
1: Mm -hmm. This can't be refuted, no matter how history is written and rewritten and written again.
2: What I'm curious about those like you know in, in so many undergraduate classes the first thing that we teach about photographs is framing the constructedness of a photograph and so we're kind of trying to kind of undermine this what we would otherwise think is like the implicit realism of a photograph I'm reminded of the famous kind of fall of Saigon photo in Vietnam and I just recently read that you know most people think of that that's that's americans fleeing the embassy that's actually southern vietnamese on an apartment building trying to you know and so mm-hmm. just the ways in which photos kind of get taken up in in cultural conversations and then mm-hmm. meanings get attached and get perpetuated i get i guess something i'm just kind of curious about thinking about riley's his comment thinking about your grandfather's comment how do you see photographs or photography kind of mediating these experiences that we would probably otherwise find as too horrific too complex mm-hmm. too difficult
1: well one thing that riley talks about in the book is what what you're describing in that you know in a particular particular moments moments when he was in combat he was recording events that his memory later on had suppressed so the camera operated as a kind of prosthetic device for him of course as the camera always is but like i said in this case recording events that his memory had suppressed so that was one role of the camera in combat and then the question for him that I think that we were trying to tease out throughout the book is so what are those the roles of those resulting photos now that he's at home and that's something you can return to it can continue to be you know they have different meanings at different times as you said people take them over and then they assume all sorts of other meanings that, that all exists, and it might sound contradictory right like this this impulse of like my grandfather had of, like I saw this just like simply stated it is
2: it was a pretty haunting statement you know Mm -hmm. when when i saw the image of it It yeah to me
1: it's a when i try to put myself in that position imagine it's a like it's a haunt it's got i mean it's a haunting feeling like i like in the very present way like i am here this this exists in the world it exists in humanity it is exists in something we do right so that might sound very contradictory to the fact that that photo can, even though it was such a statement like I saw this, can then be taken over by some other agenda and rewritten and rewritten, right? Those two, those, both of those things exist in yeah. photography. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that is a way that Riley talked about it. And then the question too is like, okay, if these are the roles of those resulting photos for him at home, what are they for me? Like, if he didn't see this image, if he couldn't remember this image in combat, and he's looking at it as if for the first time, and I'm looking at it next to him, how am I implicated in this? Right? And I think that was one of the questions I was trying to tease out through that book. book. Like, what is that triangle for me? How am I implicated? What should my roles be with this? And it makes me think about something that Ariella Azoulay talks about in detail and much more nuance that I can give it here in her book, um, The Civil Contract of Photography. But she takes like particular images and they can be historic it could maybe be something from from something recent and she says okay our job as a viewer is is to look at this and you know let's imagine it's a portrait right I, I, I've been doing this with a photo of my mother actually from 1966 she's like the the person in there who's agreed at some level, or maybe not, but they don't agree. Like, strike that, not agreed. A lot of times people are not agreeing to be photographed. They're calling out to us at this particular moment and this time in the future. And, like, our job is to respond, is to, like, look at them, to try to imagine what's around the frame, to try to imagine the particular power structures at play, and, like, project into it and describe and give that reality name that sometimes was like very silent or not able to be named at that particular moment. Like it's our job to read into these. And I think that's a really important and exciting way to think about photography. You talked about like the intro 101 class and what the framing talks about with this, but like, let's talk, let's talk about that. Like that is, that is a way of activating and making a picture. And so I think I brought that up because of, you know, like that's something that Riley was doing with him as his images is my job to do like I was doing with his images
2: yeah at one moment you have this quote you say um Riley and his images me and my outrage you and us so right there you kind of triangulate like the Riley the the primary photographer yourself as kind of the collaborator curator and then then a viewing audience and so it's kind of the three are brought together and I don't know if I'd say implicated, but 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 there, there's there's a certain kind of responsibility in, in when we see the images together.
1: Well, and I also want the, like, I think I also say in that text, something about the artists and artwork are adaptable. You're the tactile reader, but that at some point it's like an invitation, I hope, for people like to use this object for your own device and respond to your own material and archives. The way I conceive of that book and even in the library of books as a reading room is really like a launching point um, for disagreement for sure discussion and for for works that go beyond us you know we go away and those continue on and so actually that kind of so that project had multiple arms and again as a kind of beginning point for other actions I think and maybe that's part of the triangulation right and then that part of the triangle just shoots off or something but I think that I'm realizing as I work on this composition with the composers and realize each individual sound in that composition will not be named individually in the composition, but someone could take that and then take one of those sounds that is a signifier to their own research or to a window into particular history, and they can open that up and unpack that. So I'm starting to understand that, that this sound piece also might be, has another kind of triangle or also might be a launching point to open up other people's work in research. I mean, their work is already opened up, right? But to, to jump off of it.
2: Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, you can never really predict what the launching point will no, will be. And no, And
1: that would be me flattening it out. Right, <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. Do you see any connection between the work that you've done with veterans? Is, is there any kind of continuity between that and your interest with environmental systems more broadly? Do you see kind of your work with veterans and maybe the Mississippi River. I mean, I know a lot of, historically, a lot of soldiers are from the U.S. South. Yeah. Um, and so are, are, there, are, there, are there any ways in, in, in what you see kind of your work with veterans and environmental systems yeah. coming together?
1: I think about it in terms of the way that the country is militarized in a certain way. I think about it in terms of Mike Jackson, one of the authors on the project, in his book, he wrote about it in very direct personal terms, but I think one of the underlying points of his book is the philosophical choice, like a country, a system, I mean, these things aren't nations often anymore, right? Like capitalism, I don't know if I would mm-hmm. use that word, but the d- the decisions that the, pe- the people and systems and countries make about what's, who and what is expendable, who and what is worth grieving, right? Like in his book, he writes about the war that we are fighting ab- abroad in Iraq and the war we're fighting and at home when she calls the war on drugs that's in our penitentiaries and on our streets, right? So in that context it's a question of who is the country deeming is expendable. For sure when you go to war you're making a philosophical choice about that as Judith Butler writes all about, right? And I think that very much there's a similar dis, dissimilar decision, conscious or not, decision making process been played out throughout colonial settler history around land to around people and land. What are the choi- philosophical decisions that people are making is expendable, right? In terms of people and in terms of, of land. And I'm, I think what I'm trying to do right now is is draw those together and dra- bring those together. Bring things that seem disparate and and bring them together. The social construction of race and the, the way that land is treated and seen too. And I'm usually for me the book is the first place where I can think through ideas and bring them together bring like these ideas together that might not seem to live together. And then from there, usually I can move on to the, the video and the photo and all the other work that can come out of it. I usually start there. And then I think practically it goes back to what I was saying before. I'm starting to understand now how the various, the many arms of the vet, or the, the various arms of the veterans book project exist. And I'm starting to understand that, that say with the sound Mississippi river project, which has been iterative over the years, which has involved many artists and people who who've made the piece what it is that the composition or the what what's in the world that will have different arms too that other people can use and take over
2: so just kind of reflecting on on kind of your past work and all the different mediums and in in your current work right now are there kinds of work that you'd like to see more of in your field, either from yourself or, or from others, or possibly a simple version of that question might just be, what's next for you? Yeah. You know, once I, I, the, the Mississippi project finishes in twenty uh, in November of 2019.
1: Again, I said earlier, there's different political moments and you have to figure out your footing as an artist and... I think what I want to see in, I, in a yeah for what's next for me, too, is that because of the particular political climate, like a lot of things get flattened and reduced to very specific sound bites or to very particular terms. And ident- like having a super fixed identity was really important strategy used in like colonial U.S. to set up the caste system right? So it is like having a really specific fixed identity it comes, I think, in a lot of ways from a, a very a position of power. And it, it really served an elite few, or maybe not even a few, but an elite grouping of people. And it doesn't make sense for a lot of people to have that kind of like fixed identity, but we're asked to all the time. And it's really, it's really reducing. And I think it really reduces a lot of our own experiences and histories in the U.S. Like, what makes up my body? What makes up someone else's body? I feel like I'm doing work to try and tease that out and pull apart. And all those histories are many things, right? They're painful. They're contradictory. They're all sorts of things. But I think it's really important to start opening them up and aerating them and giving them the, like, the daylight. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited when people are doing that right now. Yeah. Digging into like the histories that are right under us that have been sort of compacted or something and need to be like aerated a lot
2: more. Yeah. I like that idea of compacted or contracted. And that seems like your current project is really trying to open that up. Well, Monica, it was great talking with you today. And I appreciate you sharing all of uh, your thoughts on your recent work and, and research with us here at EdgeFX.
0: Thank you for having me. That was Andrew Thomas, a doctoral student in the English department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who studies 20th and 21st century American literature and culture. He was in conversation with Monica Haller, a practicing artist, writer, and educator. Her creative work and research span photography, video, design, installation, and writing. Her collaborative work includes the Veterans Book Project and Mississippi, an Anthropocene River. Haller's work is exhibited at museums and public spaces across the U.S., including in Minneapolis and Brooklyn, and outside the U.S. in Paris, France. She has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, McKnight Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts, among others. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Carly Griffith and me, Laura Perry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps us connect with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at EdgeFX.net.